Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Second reading this afternoon is going to be from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through to 26, and that can be found on page 968. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. 
and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon. Nice to see you all. If you want to turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, it's on page 634. And I'll pray for this. Our Father, we come before you this afternoon uh, with thankful hearts. We're thankful for your love, for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful, Lord, that you're a God who knows us. You're a God who who keeps speaking to us. Uh, Father, please give us ears to hear this afternoon. Show us again the wonders of the cross. Uh, Show us again the depth of your love for us. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. That's a great quote. It's on the screen. Uh, We never move on from the cross. We never move on from the cross. We only get a more profound understanding of the cross. It's so true. You never actually go past the cross. You can never come upon your Christian life. We say, I I understand the cross now. I get the cross now. You don't start with the cross and move on to something new. You, You always keep going back to the cross with a more profound and deeper understanding. And the more you understand what happened at that old wooden cross, the richer your relationship with God will really be. This is week three of our sermon series called At One Moment. We've looked at sin, uh, the idea that we are all sinful, all of us transgress, all of us fall short, all of us fail. We don't love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't love our neighbors ourselves. We need a savior. Uh, We've looked at the idea of sacrifice, uh, how Jesus' blood cleanses us, how Jesus' blood covers our sin and brings an atonement. And this afternoon, the heart of the cross is this, this idea of substitution or a swap. And it's really quite simple. That, That concept of a swap, someone taking our place, it is so simple that the, the youngest kid in Christ can understand it. And yet so complex that the greatest theologians are still grappling with it. And it's easy to quote verses 
on substitution, isn't it? We all know the, the classic verses like Romans 5, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us on our behalf. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. We, we, we can quote verses on the idea that Jesus took our place. We can use nice Christian jargon like, Jesus died for you, Jesus took your place. What does that mean? You can sing songs about it. He took my sin and my sorrows and made them his very own. What does that mean? Behold a man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. What does that mean? You can quote theologians like Martin Luther who said this. Learn to sing to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness and I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You've become what you were not, so I might become what I was not. So you can have these theologians, you can have these songs, you can have uh, verses, you can have nice illustrations on substitution. I love a great illustration on substitution. And the more emotional you can make it, the more reaction you get. A nice illustration like uh, Father Maximilian Kolbe. He's the guy, the the, uh, Polish priest who was in the Auschwitz concentration camps. And one day, the prisoners were brought out, and uh, they were all ordered for execution. And as they walked out to be executed, uh, one man cried out, but I've got a wife and I've got kids. And Father Colby stood up and said, I will die in that man's place. And he did. They executed Father Colby instead of that married man with kids. It is beautiful. It's emotional. But what does that mean? One person dying in the place of another. Unless you fully understand substitution, your faith will be incomplete. I hope you've got the problem. Our problem is like two sides of the coin. Our problem is us and our problem is God. It's who we are and who God is. We are sinners and God is holy. And sinful people cannot come into the presence of a holy God. And we we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the punishment. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. So the question is this. How can a holy God deal with the problem with our sins in a way that's consistent with his character? How can he still be holy and still be just and yet remove his wrath from us? And the answer is substitution. The answer is that somebody takes our place. The answer is actually penal substitution. The idea that a penalty has been paid. It's really, really quite simple. The substitute receives the judgment and the sinner receives the pardon. The substitute is punished and the sinner is pardoned. That's a really simple explanation of substitution. But you know, as we sit here, there are many people in the world today who look at Jesus on the cross and they use, use words like barbaric, immoral, cosmic child abuse. Because we haven't understood who is suffering, who is being substituted, and why God did it. Before we get into Isaiah 53, let, let me flag a few concerns. I'm concerned that Too many Christians I know are are thankless. We lack gratitude. 
We walk into church every week and we hear about the cross, but our hearts are not full of gratitude and thankfulness as to what Christ has done. Uh, Too many Christians I know, uh, we lack assurance. We sit here and we're never quite certain whether we're good enough for God or whether we'll get to heaven. If that is you, you haven't understood the cross. And too many Christians I know, uh, we're a bit proud. There's a hint of pride in every single one of us. And churches can be the worst place for pride, you know. We think we're somebody. We think we're important. If that is you this afternoon, you haven't understood the cross. And too many Christians I know seem to make no effort, no effort at all to live a godly life, to live a life that's pleasing to God. If that's you this afternoon, you haven't understood the cross. Here's the best explanation of substitution I could find is by a theologian called Cranfield. He says this, God, because in his mercy he willed to forgive sinful men and being truly merciful willed to forgive them righteously, that is without in any way condoning their sin, God purposed to direct against his very own self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath that they deserved. Three points this afternoon. First one is this, uh, God's provision of substitutes. Right from the beginning of time, God has been into substitutes. He's provided substitutes. Let me give you a few examples. Remember in Genesis chapter 22, and it's that, it's that quite gruesome chapter where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Remember that chapter? And they're walking up the mountain and and Isaac turns to his dad and says, Dad, we've got the wood and we've got the fire, but where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at Isaac and says these words, God will provide the sacrifice. God will provide the substitute. And God did. A ram died in place of Isaac. A ram instead of the son. And Abraham just trusted God to provide a substitute. Same as Exodus chapter 11 to 13. Remember those gruesome chapters where where the the just, holy, righteous God who cannot stand sin, he promises to, to kill every firstborn son. But he's also the redeemer who provides a substitute. So he says to his people, take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb, and, and put the blood of the lamb around the doorpost. Remember that story? And, and God was going to pass over that night, and if he sees the blood of the lamb, he will not kill the firstborn child, because the lamb has died in its place, as a substitute. On that fateful night, there is weeping and wailing throughout the whole of Israel, as all these kids are killed. But for those who believe in the substitute, for those who trust in the substitute, who obeyed God and sacrificed the substitute, they are spared. They are spared. Same in Leviticus. Remember those daily, weekly, monthly, and annual sacrifices. They're they're all basically roughly the same. Same principle, same process. that The worshiper would bring a substitute would bring an animal, would bring a sacrifice. And, and they would lay hands on the animal. And that laying of hands is just a, a symbol. 
They're going to transfer the sins onto that animal. It's Leviticus 16, the scapegoat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and all the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put the sins onto the goat's head to transfer the sin off themselves onto the substitute. And the goat will carry on itself all their sin to a remote place. As you read your Old Testament again and again and again, God provides substitutes. But it's always on his terms. A part of being human is that you can often have this hero complex. Uh, Rachel and I have just watched the miniseries called Chernobyl, which is a brilliant miniseries. And it's an amazing scene where they realize that all this water is contaminated with radio, radioactivity. And the whole thing's about to burst. And all this stuff is going to go into all the streams and all the rivers. And literally thousands, if not millions of lives are at risk. And these three men heroically volunteer to wade into this radioactive water. And by doing that, by releasing that thing, they, they save the life of thousands, if not millions of people. And they die heroes. And we can have that kind of complex, the hero complex. I can die for somebody else. And Moses had a bit of a hero complex. In, in Exodus 32, verse 32, uh, Moses says this, Oh God, what a great sin these people have committed. Please forgive their sins, God, but if not, then blot me out of the book on their behalf. He wants to substitute himself so that God's people can be forgiven. Same as Paul in Romans chapter 9. He says, I wish that I could be cursed and cut off from Christ just to rescue a few. And it sounds wonderful, it sounds bold, it sounds audacious, but no ordinary human being can take the place of sinners. And that's the problem with all our nice illustrations. They're all about one person dying instead of a few other human beings. So what was God's solution? It's Isaiah 53, his promised substitute. Isaiah 53 is quoted directly in eight times in the New Testament. And we're supposed to read this chapter thinking, who is this? Who is this perfect substitute? Look at it with me. We are looking, verse 3, for one who will be despised, for one who will be rejected, for one who will suffer and one who will experience pain. We're looking for the person, verse 7, who will be oppressed and afflicted, beaten and scorned, and yet will not retaliate, yet will not open his mouth. We're looking for the one, verse 9, who will be assigned a grave with the wicked who will be buried like a common criminal, even though he'd done nothing wrong, verse 9. You can't help read verse Isaiah 53 without thinking about Jesus. But Isaiah 53 is all about substitution. Did you spot that? We're looking for the one, verse 4, who will take up our pain and bear our suffering. That's his Hebrew parallelism there. Our pain and our suffering are taken by Jesus, put onto Jesus. We're looking for the one, verse 5, who will be pierced. Literally, the word there is nailed. 
nailed on behalf of our transgressions and crushed on behalf of our iniquities, the one who will take our sins, our transgressions, our failures, our, our foils, and it will be crushed and he'll be pierced on our behalf. We're looking for the one, verse five, who'll be punished. The penalty will fall onto him so that we might have peace, verse five. See that swap? He gets punished, we get peace. Same in verse six, we're looking for the one who the law would lay on him deliberately. God would choose to put onto this suffering servant the iniquity of all people of all time, uh, past, present and future. We're looking for the one, verse eight, who'll be punished for the transgressions of his people. We're looking for the one, verse 10, that it's the law's will, it's God's plan to crush him, literally to kill him. We're looking for the one, verse 11, who by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. That's a legal term. We're looking for the one who will bring us justification, who will declare us not guilty in the, the law courts, who will say, no, they're not condemned, and they are spared from the penalty that they rightly deserve. We're looking for the one, verse 11, who will bear our iniquities. We're looking for the one, verse 12, who will pour out his life even unto death. We're looking for the one, verse 12, who is numbered with the transgressors, who is considered as a sinner, who will identify with the sinner even though they are innocent. They don't deserve it. And we're looking for the one, verse 12, who will bear, who will carry the weight of sin and will intercede for us guilty people. That's the one we're looking for. The suffering servant who will be despised, rejected, oppressed and afflicted. The one who will bear our sins, become our curse, endure our penalty, die our death. That's the swap. And the word substitution all hangs on a three-letter word. F-O-R. For. He died for you and for me. That word for has both a negative and a positive. He died on our behalf instead of us. That's the negative. But as a positive, he died for our benefits. There's a two-way swap happening. Yes, he's going to take the penalty for our sins. Yes, he's going to take the wrath of God on our behalf. So he gets all the bad stuff. And we get all the good stuff. We are declared righteous. So 700 years before Christ, Isaiah prophesied this. We're looking for this man who will die in our place, who will bear our sins, who will take our burdens and pour out his life for us. And then one day in a dingy backwater town called Bethlehem, in a dirty old stable, a child was born. And John said, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the Lord Jesus, our perfect substitute. There's a verse on the screen that sums it up well. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It's on the screen. God made him 
who had no sin. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was innocent. And God made him to be sin for us. He's not saying he became a sinner. He could never become a sinner, otherwise he would need a sacrifice on his behalf. But he treated him like a sinner. He treated the innocent one as though he was a sinful one. He bore the wrath. He took the burden. He took the pain. So that in him we get all the benefits. We get to become the righteous of God. That is substitution. He gets punished and we get pardoned. Let's be clear here. It's not like Moses offering to stand in our place. He's not just a man, is he? No human being could possibly or justly stand in the place of another human being. If Jesus was just a man, then the critics would be right. To sacrifice one man to pacify an angry God is wrong. It is victimization. We need a substitute who will be both fully man and fully God. We need God to step into our place. And that's what's happening. It's not just Jesus the man, it's God the Son. The second person of the Trinity, God himself, stepping into, into his world and going to the cross on our behalf. And he did that voluntarily. He did that willingly. No one forced him to go there. And Philippians 2 talks about how he humbled himself. He chose to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. I hope you understood this. The, the negative, on your behalf. Jesus was made to be like a sinner, treated like a sinner. Let me be clear. He's not just saying that Jesus identified with your pain. You ever sat with somebody when they are suffering and they're having a really hard time and you say something like, oh, I feel your pain. My heart goes out to you. You empathize with them. It's not like Jesus is the best empathizer. Yeah, of course, he, of course he feels our pain, but he took our pain. He, he bore our pain. He took the penalty. He paid the price. Now, what was the price? What's the price that you and I deserve for our sin? And the answer is the full anger of God, the full wrath of God. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Lord, if there's any other way, I don't want to drink this cup of wrath. If there's any other way but to take the wrath, please, God, but there was no other way. And when Jesus was on the cross and when darkness came over the whole land, remember that scene? The darkness is a symbol of God's anger or God's wrath. Not poured out on you, not poured out on me, but poured out on Jesus. And that's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that one moment, at that one moment in history, God the Son, God himself, is experienced the full wrath that you and I deserve. That's the penalty he paid on your behalf. And when it says, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying that he's separated from his father, like we often talk about how he's separated from God. Of course he's not separated from God. So the Trinity becomes a binary for a moment in time. It's just that for all eternity, God the Son has been in this, in this loving 
intimate relationship with his father. But at this one moment, when he experienced the full wrath of God, it's no longer a loving, intimate relationship. It's a wrathful, angry relationship. That's why we sing, you know, the father turns his face away. The father turns the face away from his son because his son is taking the penalty for you. That's why we say in the creed that he descended into hell. Have been confused by that sentence? All it's saying is that Jesus is experiencing the full wrath, which is hell. That's what Jesus did. He did it for you, he did it for me. Spurgeon tells the, the story of the man who went to visit the lady who had a massive, massive, massive debt. Remember that story? The man went to visit this lady and he went with a very generous offer to wipe out her debts and pay everything off for her. And he knocked on the door, but she didn't answer. Next week, the lady saw the man and the man said, I came to visit you last week. And the lady said this, oh, I, I heard the knock, but I thought it was my landlord collecting the rent I couldn't pay. The man came desiring to give her a free gift and pay everything for her, and she mistook him for someone coming to take more from her. And I sometimes think we treat Jesus like that. He's given us everything. He's paid everything for us, but we sometimes think that he wants to demand more from us. When you understood the cross, you can't be ungrateful. You can't be thankless. Now, I'm not saying that we're happy all the time. Looking out at you, there are people here who are going through really tough times, and you're not happy, but you can still be grateful. You can still be thankful. You can still have this deep inner joy. If you are thankless as a Christian, I don't think you've understood the cross. And you can't be insecure. You can't go around saying things like, oh, I'm just not sure whether God really loves me. What, what, what proof do you want? I'm just not sure whether I'm good enough. You're not good enough. That's why Jesus died for you. Oh, I'm just not sure I'll make it to heaven. Really? If you're thinking that, you haven't understood there's nothing you can do to earn your place in heaven. When we went to the cross, you can... Never be proud. You can never think that you are superior or you're somebody because the cross is the great leveler. We're all equal. We're all wretched sinners loved by a wonderful saviour. And there is a little bit of part of us, a little bit of, of us always thinks that we contribute something to our salvation. You know, you think you can rock up to God on the last day and somehow you get your list of attendance at church by the bridge. And I, I was at 3.30 church most Sundays. I read my Bible every day. I did, I did my prayers. I went to my Bible study. And God would say, well, good on you. But that contributed nothing. And nothing in my hand I bring but similar to the cross I cling. So stay humble. John Stott says this, every time I look at the cross... Christ seems to say to me, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing. It's your curse I'm suffering. It's your debt I'm paying. It's your death I'm dying. And nothing in history or the universe cuts me down to size like the cross. 
all of us have inflated views of ourselves until we visit a place called Calvary. And it's there at the foot of the cross we shrink to our true size. So we can't be thankless, we can't be insecure, we can't be proud and you can't be silent. If you've grasped this, that there was no other way for the debt to be paid, there's no other way for the penalty to be paid, there's no other way for God's wrath to be taken apart from the substitute. If you've grasped that, then you can't be silent about it. Because the reality is that thousands and thousands and millions of people are facing the wrath of God. And I need to hear about the loving sacrifice of his son. Have you heard of George Bernard Shaw? George Bernard Shaw understood exactly what was happening at the cross, but he hated it. He shouted in disgust, I will pay my own debts, thank you very much. But he can't pay his own debts. None of us can. And if you're here this afternoon thinking you can waltz into the presence of God saying, I'll pay my own debts, you're still facing the wrath of your God. You're facing hell. Jesus died on your behalf. But the the, the positive side is he died for your benefit. See the second half of that verse? Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we become the righteousness of God. Just like Jesus was treated as a sinner even though he was not, we get treated as though we are righteous even though we know that we're not. Isn't that amazing? God treats us as though we are righteous, as though we are holy, as though we are perfect and we know that we're not. That's the other side of the swap. That we get imputed to us Christ's righteousness. In pidgin English, the word righteous is translated as this. God, ye say, I'm all right. God, ye say, I'm all right. Do you walk around every day knowing that God, ye say, I'm all right? God looks at you today and says, you're all right, you know. And you're all right, you know. And you're all right, you know. And you know that you're not. (laughs) You know that you're full of sin. But that's how God sees you because you're in Christ. He treats Jesus as a sinner and he treats us as righteous. It is mind-blowing. But if you know that, you've got to live it. If you know that God sees you as righteous, you've got to start to live as though you're righteous. It's more than just being forgiven. It's God saying to you, you get to enjoy all the benefits and all my love and all my favour. Now go and enjoy it and start to live the righteous life. Start to live as the righteous people that I declare you to be. That's why I love the story of Andrew Chan, who's the the Bali nine person who was executed. And I love the fact that he went to, the, went to his execution confident of salvation. I love that bit. But what I really love is as soon as he met Jesus, as soon as he met Jesus, his whole life was turned around. And within the prison walls, he was known as the good person. He helped others. He was kind. He passed other people. He did good deeds. He was living the righteous life that God declared him to be. 
People look at you and go, oh, there's a righteous person. And you know that you're not, but you're seeking to be. You're seeking to live the life that Jesus calls you to live, to walk in his ways, to speak for him, to act like him. Because God sees you as righteous in his sight. That's the swap. He died on our behalf. He died for our benefits. So please never move on from the cross. Please never move on from the cross. Let me pray. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Lord Jesus, thank you for your willing, voluntary sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you that you suffered that you took our pains and you took our sorrows, you took our shames and you, you bore them all. Thank you, Lord, that in your place we stand here today forgiven and righteous in your sight. Father, forgive us for our thanklessness, forgive us for our pride, forgive us for times we fail to talk about you and forgive us for times we don't live for your glory. Transform us, change us that we might live these righteous lives that you call us to live. In Jesus' name.